Hi, my name's Nate Nelson. Welcome back to On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem. A quick note before we begin, this is the second in a two-part story about Kurt Gerstein. If you haven't already listened to Man on the Inside Part 1, go back and do that, as what follows here builds on what we covered there. Thanks. When Kurt Gerstein surrendered to the French military commandant in charge of Reutlingen, he was received with honor. Literally, the Allied army held him in what was termed honorable captivity. He was put up at the Hotel Moren in the nearby town of Rottweil, where he wrote a now-famous report detailing what he'd witnessed as a lieutenant for the Schutzstaffel. Gerstein was so comfortable with his accommodations, in fact, that upon completing the report, he wrote to his French handler saying, basically, that he was ready to go home. Oh, and another thing, he wanted his old mining job back, you know, if they could swing it. That was April and May 1945. In June, he found himself in a less honorable captivity, behind bars at the Cherchemedy military prison in Paris. Now, viewed from a distance, Cherchemedy did have the appearance of a perfectly pleasant building, the kind that might house middle-class apartments or a school. It was located on an ordinary street, but a thick wall and big wooden doors separated the inside from pedestrian traffic. And with a closer look, you'd notice the metal bars in the windows. Inside, let's just say it was a far cry from the Hotel Moren. We know it from accounts written by other German POWs. Quote, There was no window in the cell. It was a gloomy hole without illumination or heating. Added to this, the cell was alive with bugs and lice, which defied all attempts to destroy them. Apart from rare exceptions, the food was completely inadequate, with the results that we got thinner and thinner. The sanitary arrangements in that ancient building were indescribable. End quote. It was as Gerstein sat in one of those cold, dark cages that an inquiry was opened into his case, quote, in regards to murders and complicity in murder. But only two weeks later, on July 25th, the inquiry was cut short when the accused was found sprawled out in his cell, the torn blanket he used to hang himself still wrapped around his neck. There was apparently a note. It was lost. Valerie Hebert is an associate professor at Lakehead University. I tried to access records about his time at Cherchemitzi. There's just nothing. There is, is very little to go on about what happened in those intervening days. The thing is about Gerstein, though, I mean, there was some suspicion that perhaps he'd been killed by somebody else housed in the same prison because he was willing to incriminate others. Certainly that's plausible. But I also think suicide is also entirely plausible. Suicide was the official determination. We can only speculate about motive. Perhaps Gerstein just couldn't take it any longer. Perhaps he thought he wouldn't receive a fair trial. Or perhaps he feared what that trial might expose. To grasp what so deeply tortured Kurt Gerstein in his final hours, frankly his final years, we have to rewind his story way back all the way back to the beginning. 
As a young man, Gerstein became deeply embedded in the Christian church. For example, in 1932, he became the head of the entire country's evangelical youth movement. And like a lot of other men of his generation, he joined the SA. Uh, these were the stormtroopers. They're also called the brown shirts. This was the paramilitary organization uh, attached to the Nazi party. And then he joined the party itself in May 1933. At the same time he was leading church circles, the young Kurt Gerstein was also participating in Nazi paramilitary exercises. And given what he was to become, these choices seem out of character and baffling. He never did fully explain why he joined the SA and the party. His family supported the movement, particularly his father, so it might have just been, you know, pressure from within his his own family. But he was also a graduate engineer and uh, had a budding career in the civil service. He worked for uh, state mining enterprises. And so party membership certainly would have been helpful, helpful career-wise. That might have been, you know, a reason. There's evidence that he was attracted to the party's promises to repair the battered economy of Germany. Uh, he certainly also sympathized with the Nazis' anti-Bolshevism. It was the Bolsheviks' um, rejection of organized religion that probably would have resonated deeply with him and the Nazis' you know, promise to rid Germany of Bolshevik presence. There are all kinds of explanations for why Kurt Gerstein involved himself with the Nazi party. For a number of years, what you see happening with Gerstein is this, you know, ongoing struggle between desire, I think, to try and inhabit both worlds, you know, sort of the, the world of the government in power in Germany at that time, and then also this, this Christian world where he is motivated by very strict and clear uh, moral principles. Gerstein may have lacked strong feelings about the Third Reich until they forced his hands by taking over the church. He resisted, and rather than being met with some kind of harmonious compromise, you know, harmonious compromise not being a particular strength of the Nazi party, he instead got a taste of the darker side of his government. First, he was targeted by the Gestapo, who gradually made themselves more present in his life. But even as he spread anti-government literature, Gierstein still wasn't prepared to totally distance himself from that government. For example, after his first arrest. Once he was released, he actively sought reinstatement to the party. Again, this seems, you know, strange to us. Um, you know, how can you sort of pursue these two paths, resistance and also trying once again to, you know, place himself in the party? In his reapplication, he claimed that he had just been trying to be a good Christian, but, you know, had now seen the light. He was committed to being uh, a loyal Nazi. Letters he wrote at the time suggest he was doing this under pressure from his father. His own brother said as much. With help from his family and connections higher up in the party, Kurt managed to get his status changed from exclusion to the less harsh dismissal. Of course, that didn't stop him from opposing the government. His public speaking ban and subsequent detainment at the Veltsheim prison camp were still to come. The really confusing thing is that even after six weeks of starvation and forced labor at Veltsheim, Kurt Gerstein never totally disavowed National Socialism. He simultaneously opposed them on moral and religious grounds, 
and was willing to turn the other way in certain other respects. To help parse out this apparent juxtaposition, we can look to a letter that he wrote in 1938 to relatives in America. This was just after his release at Veltheim, and even in such a state, you can tell that he was of two minds. Quote, in your visits to Germany, you have seen the good that the Hitler movement has produced, roads, employment, construction, but you were not able to see the tragedy that results from the loss of intellectual freedom, religious freedom, and justice. We have all been at pains where we have had to raise resistance not to strike at political national socialism because that is not our affair. We have only tried to defend rights and responsibilities that were and are again and again solemnly guaranteed to us by Herr Hitler and National Socialism. You know, this attempt to try and, and square both resistance activity and this ongoing sympathy, you know, I don't think we can entirely square these things. Is there anything to be gleaned from Kurt Gerstein's apparently unbreakable sympathy for at least certain aspects of the Nazi movement? For example, might it have made the otherwise unthinkable notion of joining the SS thinkable. Or perhaps it casts a certain light on one other mystery of Gerstein's life. You see, even if his express purpose was to expose and undermine the SS, there's still the matter that he, alongside all his resistance activities, still did serve them for four years. His early work there involved building disinfection systems for soldiers, so mobile things that could be taken into the field. He was also designing disinfection systems and uh, water filtration equipment for POW and concentration camps. And he was quite successful in this work, so much so that he was made head of the health engineering department, which included developing uh, disinfection services using uh, poisonous gases. Even highly trained spies get caught sometimes. Kurt Gerstein, by contrast, raised few red flags among his fellow soldiers. Apparently, he spent enough of his time doing regular SS business. One can only imagine the kinds of things he must have done, the acts he must have taken part in, in order to avoid being detected. And so, you know, this is what... Again, sort of one of the confounding things about Gerstein, as much as he might have been motivated to join the SS in order to learn about the regime's crimes and to be in a position to uh, work against them or expose them, in order to be in that position, he also had to carry out his work with competence and with success. So while the intention was to sabotage the regime, he's also in his day-to-day -day, uh, routines supporting and advancing the larger Nazi project. So is he still a committed anti-Nazi? Yes. Is he also serving the SS? Yes. It's around this point where we can start to understand, at least, why the French liberators might have had reason to question Gerstein and his motives. Perhaps he really was a resistor, but it certainly wasn't so clear-cut as it might have first seemed. In fact, it was much less clear-cut than even they likely realized at the time. Whether Kurt Gerstein was a resistor or a perpetrator was a question that would be litigated for years, and even decades, beyond the man's death. There were three sets of 
legal proceedings that dealt with Gerstein's case after the war. They're fascinating because they were all different bodies, you know, uh, operating for different purposes according to different laws. And what they all shared, though, was they had to pass some kind of judgment on Gerstein, a person whose work both opposed and supported a criminal regime. The first legal body that took a view of Kurt Gerstein's service to the SS occurred in 1948 and 1949. A trial was arranged not for Gerstein, but rather three employees of the Degesch Company, Germany's sole manufacturer of Zyklon B poison gas. The principal defendant was the former manager. His name was Gerhard Peters. And he was charged with murder and uh, accessory to murder for having delivered Zyklon B to Auschwitz. The pivotal issue in determining his guilt, and this was uh, a function of uh, German law on, on murder and accessory to murder, the pivotal issue was whether Peters knew at the time that he sold this gas that it was intended to be used uh, to kill people. And so this is where Gerstein comes in, because it was Gerstein who approached him with the request for shipments of uh, Zyklon B. And so the court became very interested in what Gerstein said during that initial meeting, um, and then also whether the gas actually was used to kill people. The Zyklon B that Kurt Gerstein ordered from Gerhard Peters in 1943 was to be delivered to two locations. Those locations on their own revealed quite a bit about how the chemical might have been used. The first was Oranienburg. What do we know about how this gas was used? Well, uh, Oranienburg, Sachsenhausen, was a camp for forced laborers, for POWs, for political prisoners. It had a very small gas chamber about the size of two standard shower stalls. It was mainly used for experimental purposes. Most of the people who died there perished by shooting. Whether the delivery to Oranienburg would be used in mass murder wasn't clear. Less of a question, though, surrounded the second delivery headed straight for Auschwitz-Birkenau. Auschwitz, which in this context included the main killing center at Birkenau, this was the primary um, killing center for the East. So it makes sense that uh, Zyklon B would be delivered there if it was to be used for killing people. The court in Frankfurt noted evidence that Kurt Gerstein had faked a truck accident in order to destroy the first shipment from Degesh, and that, in so doing, he may have prevented that batch from ever being used against people. They heard from many of Gerstein's friends and acquaintances as well, who testified to his honesty and aversion to Nazi ideology. They also heard testimony from workers at Oranienburg, who recalled that a shipment that Gerstein had delivered identifiable as it came in non-standard 100-gram canisters, had actually been rerouted out of the camp to where they didn't exactly know. They said, well, we can't count any of uh, you know, Gerstein's gas that went to Oranienburg, but it still left the um, Auschwitz shipments in contention. Through what records survived the war, it appeared Gerstein was unable to divert at least 1,775 kilograms of Zyklon B from reaching Auschwitz, but that he may have had some hand in at least delaying its use. It's possible that all of this gas had just uh, been accumulating at, at Auschwitz and May 1944. It still hadn't been used. They're willing to accept that that was possible. But it was at that very time, that very moment, 
that there was um, a significant increase in the demand for Zyklon B at Auschwitz for two reasons. One was the uh, deportation of Hungary's Jews, which began in May in about only six weeks. 440,000 Hungarian Jews were sent to Auschwitz. Uh, most of them uh, perished there. So that's happening right at the moment where this this potential stockpile of Zyklon B sitting there. Also, the um, manufacturing plant in Dessau was bombed. Um, and this meant there was now a shortage in the supply. So even if Gerstein had somehow prevented its use until then, the court didn't believe this could be assured after May 1944. And the total that they could, that they had evidence for, that they could account for was 1,775 kilograms. Um, only about six kilograms was needed to asphyxiate 1,500 people. So if we you know, work out these calculations, Gerstein's 1,775 kilograms of Cyclone B, perhaps still sitting there stockpiled at Auschwitz, um, was enough to cause the deaths of about 450,000 people. By the end of the Frankfurt trial, the judges concluded that Gerstein, quote, represented the type of man who rejected the Nazi regime from deepest conviction, even hated it, but took part in it to prevent worse things and to work against it from the inside, end quote. At the same time, however, they found that, quote, he did not succeed in eliminating the deliveries of poison gas in a decisive way, end quote. In other words... In spite of any good intentions, he may have had a hand in anywhere from zero to 450,000 murders. In 1949, Frau Gerstein, now four years without her husband, the breadwinner of the household, filed for welfare. It may have been necessary from a financial standpoint but it opened up a can of worms all over again. So anybody seeking any kind of responsible employment or um, political or, or um, you know, political office, anyone seeking, seeking state support would have to prove uh, that their past was free of, of um, sort of Nazi contamination. So Gerstein's dead, but even for his heirs to receive uh, state support, there had to be an investigation into his past. The judges in Kurt Gerstein's second posthumous assessment agreed with the judges in his first that his intentions were good, but that he most likely failed at actually making any significant dent in the Nazi machine. And this body went one step further. He was in a position where he could have predicted that failure. He could have seen that the machinery was stronger with him uh, than him, and he should have simply removed himself altogether rather than try continually pursue this this fruitless path of, of resistance. The denazification evaluation included five official categories. They were main offender, tainted, lesser offender, follower, or exonerated from worst to best. For reference, Paul Salater, whom we covered in a different episode of this podcast, was deemed a category three lesser offender for his role in transporting 1,007 Jews to the ghetto in Riga, Latvia. At the conclusion of Kurt Gerstein's denazification trial, the court handed down their ruling. He was tainted, 
Category 2. The widow and the three children are still in dire financial straits. So there were another few options available. They could try and have this denazification classification overturned. There was also the possibility of pursuing um, compensation for Gerstein having been imprisoned by the regime for his resistance. They could also pursue compensation for his uh what they alleged was his wrongful death in French custody. There was also the possibility of seeking uh, a pension because he had been a state employee for a short time in the 1930s and and just over the beginning of the, the war. And these cases, which actually only concluded in 1969, they went on for years and years and years, a lot of complicated legal wrangling, various provincial and federal bodies, you know, took on this case using different laws. There was decisions, appeals, new cases. But essentially, they fell into, they followed a similar pattern, right? They believed that he'd been an opponent of the regime in the early years. They questioned his motives for joining the SS. He did at least superficially cooperate with the murder of the Jews. Um, And certainly, once he had full knowledge of what the regime was doing, he should have recognized his own, how should I put this, like his own incapacity, like that he was only one person, that he didn't have the power or was not highly placed enough in order to affect real change about this. And it would have been better for him if he had simply um, left the SS altogether. The final legal decision with regards to Kurt Gerstein was made on June 13th, 1969. Government authorities offered Mrs. Gerstein a settlement on the grounds that her husband, three decades prior, had lost his position as a state employee for reasons, quote, other than officially sanctioned, end quote. In other words, their decision had only to do with Gerstein's employment through 1936, his SS service being entirely irrelevant to the matter. That made things a lot less complicated. And that was where they they left it. There was no reason to deny him or his heirs this pension, so it was allowed to uh, be paid out. But the terms of the agreement were also very stern in, in telling his widow, it ends here. This ends any further appeals, requests, or revisiting of the case. 23 years after his death, the matter of Kurt Gerstein was finally laid to rest. It was befitting of a man of such contradictions that no definitive judgment was reached. What outstanding mysteries of Gerstein's story nag at you? Um, I wish I knew why he was directed to obtain these shipments of Cyclone B to Auschwitz and Oranienburg, because what he obtained represented only a fraction of what was actually used there. I'd like to know what his day-to-day activities were, right? He listed having, mentioned having visited these other camps. He said he tried to avoid this because it was customary to hang a prisoner in honor of an official visit from someone. Um, but certainly he he was at these places. Why? You know, we don't know. What else was he involved in? And it's not so much that I suspect he was... Uh, wavering in his resistance or faltering in his opposition, but I just would like to know more about what he was uh, doing. Things that nag me about his story, you know, one is the terrible loneliness of his position, 
right? He tried to alert people of influence. The information went nowhere. It changed nothing. You know, he believed he had to stay with the SS, even though it brought him deeper and deeper into the worst crimes of the regimes. You know, I think he had to know he was part of that machinery. And his suicide at the end of the war suggests at a minimum that he was not at peace. You know, there's something very tragic about that. The legal decisions trouble me. They came to this similar and repeating conclusion that, you know, Gerstein ultimately failed. You know, he could have predicted this failure. And what they're saying is that he would have been in a better legal and some even suggested a better moral position if he had left the SS after Belzets, right, if not sooner. And this is troublesome in two ways, because one, the laws uh, that the courts applied privileged action over intention, which meant that they couldn't take full account of the context, right? And it raises questions about the law's capacity to confront morally complex cases. It's troublesome also in how the law was interpreted, because the judgment suggested that it's better to be uninvolved, right, to retreat, than uh, to fight and defend principles that, you know, when the odds are stacked against us, it's better to set our conscience aside and with it abandon others who might be in, in harm's way. There are all kinds of ways that you can judge Kurt Gerstein, even though the facts never change. He both participated in and sabotaged an unprecedented total and systematic genocide. Regardless of the context or the motive, both of these things are true, and neither cancels out the other. I don't think there is a way to come to a satisfying conclusion about him because these two fundamental things about him can't be reconciled. At the same time, I think that is where the truth actually is. He was an accessory to murder and a courageous opponent of a murderous regime. Simultaneously, indivisibly. You know, the courts had to choose one side of his story, but we don't. That's it for Kurt Gerstein. This has been On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem. Our program was produced by Itamar Swissa, Danny Timor, and Ron Levy. Research and content management by Jonathan Clapsaddle, Irit Dagan, and Daphne Delinko. The story you heard was written by myself, Nate Nelson. Thank you for listening.